is that time in our service where we look at the living word of the living God. If you'll open your Bible to the book of Matthew, for those of you who regularly attend here know that we have been working our way sequentially through the gospel of Matthew, and we find ourselves this morning in chapter 11 of said book. Matthew chapter 11 and verses 1 through 6 are the verses that we will explore and explain best of ability with the help of the Spirit of the Living God this morning. The text reads as follows. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one? or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Uh, I'm going to use as a subject, our title for these verses, Defeating Doubt. The text before us is a case about doubt. <laughs> uh, the doubt concerns whether Jesus is the expected one or not. The doubter, of course, is no less a figure than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the prophet, uh, the forerunner of Jesus, and the one who baptized him. John also saw the Spirit of God descend upon the Lord after his baptism like a dove, signifying that indeed he is the Son of God. John's doubt, you need to understand, wasn't the consequence of doubting the truthfulness of the Word of God. Rather, it was the, the result of perplexity and confusion. He was perplexed as to what God was doing. He was perplexed because of the turn of events that involved him personally. As we examine this text and other ones, we will be able to discern the causes of this great man's perplexity with respect to the Messiahship of Jesus. And as we do so, I, I believe and I hope, and this is my desire, that Christians can glean help for those times when they themselves are perplexed and confused and have spiritual doubt about what the Lord is doing in their lives and perhaps even in the world. Before we address verses 2 through 6 in full, I think it would be helpful for us to center our attention on verse 1 and in part verse 2, at least for a brief moment. In verse 1, you heard me read you that Jesus concluded his instructions to the twelve. We looked at those instructions in a previous message, or messages actually, in chapter 10. We saw where Jesus talked about the difficult road they would encounter as they were preaching the gospel. 
He also related to them uh, the reward that comes from faithful service. And then he dismissed them to go on their missionary journey. And he himself departed, it says in verse 11, to preach in their cities, the cities of Galilee. It was a solo mission by our Lord. Then we remember verse 3 that the question was asked, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? We go back to verse 2. I think it's notable that in verse 2, Matthew states, notice in verse 2, the works of Christ. This is notable because usually Matthew refers to the Lord by his human name, Jesus. He does so in chapter 10, and he does so twice in our text. But here in verse 2, he refers to him as Christ. Literally, the Greek text reads, works of the Christ, calls Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Christ, as you may know, is the transliteration into English of the Greek Christos. And Christos is the equivalent of the Hebrew Mashiach. Mashiach, the anointed one. Messiah. Matthew, by calling Jesus here in verse 2, the Christ, he affirms that Jesus is the expected one. He is the Messiah. There is no doubt about it. So as Matthew records this portion of the gospel of his, he is looking back on the event in John the Baptist's life and the doubt that was in John the Baptist's mind. And Matthew underscores the truth that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. No doubt about it. So we continue in verses 2 and 3. We'll look at it on them under the heading, Doubt Expressed. Now, well, when John, while imprisoned, let's think about that for a moment. You want to know where doubt comes from? What can create doubt? It's generated by negative circumstances. One of the key words in this verse is imprisoned imprisoned. John was incarcerated at Fortress Macarius. It was located south of Jerusalem and it was east of the Dead Sea. John was locked up, not for wrongdoing, but for doing what was right in God's eyes. John stood on the Word of God and fulfilled his role as a spokesman or a prophet for the living God. How did he do that? He confronted Herod concerning his adulterous marriage to Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. In fact, John informed Herod by these words, it is not lawful for you to have her. Can you imagine approaching the one in authority? the one who had earthly, temporal power, and confronting that one with the word of the living God. 
It's not lawful for you to have her. Matthew chapter 14, verse 3. This bold, uncompromising confrontation resulted in John the Baptist being jailed. Herod, in fact, wanted to kill John the Baptist. But it wasn't advisable at that time. So John languished there in prison. Herod wanted to kill John. He had locked him up. Herod did not want to be confronted about his sin. He resented being confronted by, about his sin. He loved his sin and he loved darkness rather than light. Sinners will often reject or react with hostility to the exposure of their evil by the light of divine truth. Don't be shocked when you communicate the truth of their sinfulness, their rebellion against God that they are not in alignment with him according to his word, that they do not act favorably toward you. Sinners are allergic to the holiness of God, and they hate his truth, and they hate him. That's a reality. Now, just be sure that you confront them with the word of God and not your opinion. Because your opinion is not an issue. Your opinion doesn't matter. But the word of God has to be the central matter in your confrontation with them. So he's in jail. In fact, John the Baptist at this juncture had been under lock and key for about a year. And no doubt he perceived himself as a loyal, faithful servant of Yahweh. But here he was experiencing negative circumstances. Like Job, no doubt, he couldn't understand why God allowed negative circumstances in his life. Mistreatment, even in the extreme, has often been the lot of believers. Do understand that if you live by faith, you can experience trouble from the world. Sadly, we've been told that if you have faith, you're going to prosper. That all will go well with you. I, I beg to differ. Not because I think I know so much, but because I know what the Bible says. In Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith, that portion of scripture, which is a delineation of people who lived by faith, and they were commended for it by God himself. We see some people who lived by faith, but who experienced the trauma of persecution. They endured the pain and the difficulty of standing for God in a world that hates its creator. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36. The writer of Hebrews has given us a litany of people who by faith did some extraordinary things. I mean, they conquered kingdoms. One man was obedient to the Lord and he walked with God right on into heaven. Enoch. But we get to verse 36. 
And these people walk by faith too. And it says here, and other they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Here you have is a depiction of men who were faithful to God and they paid a price for it. If you are faithful to Christ, if you're faithful in doing His will in a hostile world, if you're faithful in righteous living, there can be a time when you'll experience difficulty from the world because of it. And don't let anybody tell you it's because you didn't have the faith. When anybody wants to bring up that bogus idea, you hurry and rush them over to Hebrews chapter 11. Amen. People have faith. Now, back to John. John the Baptist and his circumstance. I'm sure John was thinking, certainly Messiah had power to free me from imprisonment. In fact, it probably seemed inconsistent with John's faithfulness and Messiah's power that he remained locked in prison. Well, what do we make of this as believers? Because the reality is, John never was freed from prison. He was beheaded. What do you make of it? Every situation, get this, every situation that believers find themselves in is subject to the sovereign purpose of God. Whether it is perceived as deserved or undeserved. Whether you understand it or not. Whatever comes into your life, whatever difficulty comes into your situation, do understand it comes under the sovereign purpose of God for your life. What must you do? You need to trust His wise purpose. You need to understand that your Heavenly Father is all wise. You need to understand that He has brought this about in your life for His own wise purpose and for your good and just trust Him. You have to learn to trust Him. Negative circumstances will come. But you have to meet them with a positive, re positive resolve to trust in the Lord. Another cause for doubt is incomplete revelation. Incomplete revelation. The works of Christ there in verse 2. Messiah's ministry was going right along. John is locked up in uh, this fortress. And Messiah, the works of Christ, uh, the Christ, as we've seen earlier, uh, healings were going on, preaching was taking place, deliverance from demons was continuing. John the Baptist was getting periodic reports and he is understanding that our Lord's ministry was one of grace, one of mercy, one of forgiveness, 
of salvation for repentant sinners. But what was conspicuously absent was judgment on sinners. The wrath of God had not been brought down on them. John the Baptist couldn't understand that. That was perplexing to him. Because John the Baptist came preaching and he came preaching about judgment. And he's hearing about Jesus. He's just talking about mercy and grace and forgiveness. And John says, I, I, I don't get that. What's the deal here? Where's the judgment? And we know he thought the judgment was imminent in Matthew chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. You can see that why he was perplexed, why he was confused. John was preaching, you recall. And in verse 10 it says, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. <laughs> Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Get, get this, verse 10. The axe was already laid at the root of the tree, symbolizing the imminent execution of judgment. When John was preaching, he said, the axe is not up here in the air. The axe is right down here. The axe is about ready to cut you down, you sinners. Judgment is imminent. That's what he preached. Verse 11, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. What the Baptist is saying here, judgment be in the hands of the Lord who is coming after me. An unquenchable fire, inescapable judgment is coming. It will engulf sinners, which they will internally, eternally endure as punishment for their rebellion against God. But he's locked up in prison. He's preached this, and guess what? Judgment has not fallen. He's perplexed. Sinners seem to be getting by. Don't you see that sometimes? It, it, it seems like sinners are making hay. They're getting by. They're, they're not suffering the consequences. And uh, you, you, you scratch your head and you say, I know God is a God of justice. And it seems like wicked people just keep on rolling along. And John was thinking, no doubt, here I've been faithful and here I'm suffering. And here are all these wicked people. Uh, they're just getting by, escaping. Why hasn't judgment, the judgment of eternal punishment, come on sinners in mass? Hmm. Here's the problem. John had incomplete revelation. Do understand this. You need to understand this. You understand why judgment hasn't fallen in mass in the world. There's a divine plan. John didn't know this, a divine plan. There's a time gap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This time gap would see the establishment of the church. John didn't know that. Jesus, Jews and Gentiles will be one in the body of Messiah or the body of Christ. 
this truth was a mystery. This truth was unrevealed in the Old Testament that Gentile salvation, yes, but Gentiles and Jews together in one body. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 and 6, Paul disclosed that. that John didn't know that. When Christ returns, he will execute judgment on the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him, Jude 15. He is going to judge. Let me stop here and say this. Don't, don't infer from that that there is no judgment now. Future judgment, yes. A final judgment, yes. But God even judges now. We even see that in the Bible. There is judgment. In the Old Testament, God judged his people. God judged his enemies. We see it even later in um, AD 70. God judged Israel. The Romans went in and wiped them out, murdered many, many Jews. God judges. God, in his providence, judges. I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of what has happened here in the state of Oklahoma down in McCurtain County. Y'all have heard about that? That stuff's been going on a long time. I've been down there any number of times, many times. I've preached down there twice. I, when I go there, I think, first thing I think, Little Dixie. All this stuff is being uncovered. Even in China, they know about it. I'm going to tell you something. Yes, there's a final judgment. God also judges in time. He exposes things. He judges sinners. Nobody gets away. Don't think you do. You say, well, I might get away and die and I got away. No, you didn't. There is no sinner who will ultimately say, I got away. Because nobody gets away. Now, I'll tell you what we have. Word of application for us. We have completed Scripture, something John the Baptist didn't have. We can study the Scripture. We can know the mind of God. We can know what God is doing in the world. If you don't really understand God's plan, it's because you haven't been in the Word of God sufficiently. You get in the Word of God and you'll understand because we have the canon. John the Baptist didn't have the completed canon. We do. And why is it important to know the Scripture? Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. I want you to see a text here. If you would like to look there, I want to draw it out of here and you can see why it's important to have this information that comes from the Word of the living God. Matthew chapter 22, verse 29. But Jesus answered and said to the Sadducees, who, you know, they're talking about how can there be, they, there's no resurrection. Because a man had seven wives. Who's she going to be when they get in the resurrection? What a stupid question. They thought they were so smart. And Jesus, in verse 29, said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. Jesus said, You don't know the Word of God. You're ignorant of it. That's the basis for your dumb question. Jesus didn't say dumb question. That's me. <laughs> But when you think about it, it's dumb because if they knew the scripture, they wouldn't even broach the question, right? But when you know the scripture, you know the power of God. 
You don't have all your little fuzzy ideas running around your mind. Well, God, well, what's going on? I don't understand what the world's Yes, we do know what the world's coming to because God's already told us. I don't wake up in the morning and I hear something uh, awful go on in our world, our country, and say, oh, man, I, I just don't know what's happening. Yeah, I know what's happening because I know what the book says. If you know the Scripture, you study the Scripture, you absorb the Scripture, you memorize the Scripture, you, you pray concerning the Scripture, God will reveal His truth to you and you'll understand what's happening in the world and you'll know it from the one who is leading this whole thing to its conclusion based on His eternal plan. John the Baptist didn't have that at this point in his life. But you and I do. So we can understand. Another cause for doubt about Jesus as Messiah uh, being the expected one was a popular misconception. Popular misconception in Judaism, Messiah was expected to be a political and military leader who would overthrow the Romans. You know, they chafed under the Roman rule and they hated the Romans, the Jews did. They hated everything about them. They were a bunch of idolaters. They didn't want them... The coinage, there was Caesar's uh, uh, portrait on it. All of that stuff was anathema to the Jews. They despised the Romans. They didn't like the fact that they were under their sovereign control. They wanted their political autonomy. They wanted to be free to run their own country. They didn't like those idolaters. But their thinking was, when Messiah comes, he is going to overthrow the Romans. In fact, in John chapter 6, verse 15, Jesus had to get his disciples away because after Jesus multiplied the loaves and, you know, fed them, everybody said, oh, boy, this is great. He can do these miracles. He can get rid of the Romans. They were going to force him to be king. And Jesus said, no, no way. Contemporary Judaism overlooked the Old Testament text that clearly teaches the sufferings of Messiah. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. The prophets in the Old Testament, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, they looked into the prophecies of trying to determine when the sufferings and the glories would come. Let me give you additional help here. Do not be misled by wrong teachings concerning who Jesus is supposed to be or what he's supposed to do. There are people in the so-called Christian world, Christendom, and people at large think Jesus is supposed to be a political liberator. Let me tell you something. He is. But he ain't going to do it now. He is not the liberator right now. He's going to liberate when he comes here personally. So don't look to him saying, Jesus is the liberator. He's going to do all that. No, 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 no. No, he is not. If you know the book, you know the word, you know, he's not going to do that till he comes and reigns and rules on this planet. Jesus is not going to be what people want him to be. He's going to be who he is. And he's going to do precisely what the Father's plan is. Ground your understanding in the revelation of God, not in what people say. Our desire in the world at large. Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, we come to that text. Jesus' ministry did not alter John's condition. We've seen that already. He asked the question there. 
John began to doubt, are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? Are you Messiah? We might put words in John's mouth like this. I have believed you are the expected one. I have pointed others to you. But was I wrong? Was I wrong? That's just confusion. That's the perplexity. So express the doubt. Proof provided. Let's look at verse 4. Proof provided. Jesus answers him this way to John's intermediaries. Go and report to John what you hear and see. Uh, let me tell you something about Jesus. He's, he's a sympathetic high priest, isn't he? he, he uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. John expressed his weaknesses, his weakness and his doubt. And Jesus wanted to affirm to John that he is to expect one by providing proof. So you tell him, report to him what you hear and see. And here, here is what they saw and what they heard. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Let's unpack it. Because upon reading that, you can say, okay, Jesus does miracles. We know that because he's been doing miracles in the text that we've read up to this point as we've seen in the gospels. That's clear. But what you need to understand here that what Jesus is telling them, the miracles that I'm doing, they were prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. Those works of healing the blind and lame and the deaf are associated with the messianic kingdom. Jesus, in effect, by his action, is saying, I am the Messiah because I'm doing the works of the Messiah that the Old Testament prophesied that I, the Messiah would do. And that's an indication that the messianic kingdom has begun to be, it's being inaugurated. Remember when you pray in Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 and 8 portion, your kingdom come, it'll be realized when Jesus comes and rules on this planet. The miraculous works are a preview of the coming kingdom over which Jesus the Christ will reign. The dead will be raised up. Isaiah 26, 19, there's a coming a time when the corporate nation of Israel is going to be raised from the dead. But this was a preview. Those dead people being raised there during Jesus' ministry. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, also says the resurrection uh, is associated with the Messiah's kingdom. You look down at the bottom of the verse. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This, too, is a messianic prophecy. Jesus, in fact, read this text. Remember, he went to the synagogue, his hometown in Nazareth. He read it as Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and following. After he read the text, he gave the scroll back to the attendant and he sat down. And he said, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So he applied the text to himself. You know what those people did? They wanted to rush him off a cliff and kill him. Jesus said, by these things, what you saw and what you hear, I'm Messiah. Death expressed, doubt expressed, proof provided, blessing pronounced. Verse 6. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. This is a beatitude. Happy, fortunate is the one who does not get tripped up. You want to be blessed? Don't doubt who Jesus Christ is. You want joy? Don't doubt who Jesus Christ is. You want blessing and joy? Understand that Jesus is Messiah. Now, let me tell you something about Jesus' divine messiahship and the gospel deliverance from sin through faith in him is a great offense to the world. Do understand that. They don't like the idea. You say Jesus is the Savior? Yes, he is. He's the only one that can deliver you. We understand that because Christians understand this fundamental reality about Jesus Christ. Now, you know, it's interesting. I've alluded to it. I'm going to say it again. I want you to get this. Jesus did not deliver John the Baptist from prison. Think about that. He could have, but he didn't. May I say to you, sometimes it's God's will that you have to endure it. But what Jesus did was more important. He assured John that he, Jesus, is the expected one. When you know you got the Savior, you know you belong to him. There is nothing in this world that is more important than that. Now, I need to ask a question. Is he your Messiah? Has he delivered you from your sins? Have you committed your life to him? Because when it's all said and done, that's all that's going to matter. That's all that's going to count. That's all you're going to be happy to know if you've come to him that he's delivered you from your sin. Jesus proved who he is. The question is, will you trust him as the Lord, Messiah, that he is? What about you? What will you do with Jesus? Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the expected one. We know that, and we thank you that we can rest assured without a scintilla of doubt 
that he is the Lord. He is Messiah. I pray for anyone in this room who's without him, who has not come to him. They would turn their life over to him. Trust your word. Trust in the one who purposefully came here to die for sinners. For sinners' debt owed to you an eternal debt and paid in full. Died in the sinner's stead and was buried in borrowed tomb was raised from the dead the third day according to the scriptures is alive forevermore and is willing to save forgive any who will come humbly in repentant faith to him pray that you do that in the life of sinners or sinners this very hour glorify your name and father we thank you for the young man who was going to honor you by exhibiting that he is following Christ in the waters of baptism. Thank you for the reality of the seriousness of being a Christian and all that it entails. May we rejoice with him and may we rejoice together in what God has done, what you've done for us in making us your own. These things we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. We have two people here, standing here.